0: Okay, so I want to begin by just giving a very short recap of the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter by chapter because, you know, we've obviously been here a long time. And it, as you kind of wrap up, you can, you can it's easy when we're taking, you know, a chapter or part of a chapter a week by the end of it to be like, okay, and, and why did he write this again? And what was the whole, you know, point of, of this message? So we're just going to run through these things. Um, In chapter 1, he gives words of encouragement, and he talks about the gospel being greater than baptism, because baptism does not save us, and that the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of humans. In chapter 2, it's about the priority of the gospel, that we are fellow workers with Jesus and that Jesus is our foundation. In chapter 3, he continues on that with build everything on Jesus. In chapter 4, God has provided for the church at Corinth, but there is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus. We need to never forget that. Chapter 5, judge things inside the church so that the testimony of the church is not ruined in the world. Chapter 6, don't take your brother to court and avoid all sexual sin. Okay? you got pretty different things there, but all having to do again with the testimony of the Lord and the testimony of the church. Uh, Chapter 7, he talks about singleness and marriage. And you know really the the gospel gives validity towards deciding to live a single life and deciding to stay single for a number of years or for your whole life it gives validity to that because it says that the church can grow the kingdom of god can grow through conversion through people coming to know jesus and that some people will need to dedicate their entire lives to that and forsake you know make certain sacrifices even the sacrifice of marriage, and God calls certain people to that. And Jesus even, you know, it says, "Well, this is really from Jesus." Paul is just expounding on it. Um, that some people, uh, for the kingdom of God, will forsake being married. But the kingdom of God also it, it, it validates in the gospel. It, it validates marriage as well, because um, you know, even when we have when we have children, like why do we bring children in such a, into such a terrible and dark world? It shows it's a sign, it's a testimony of our hope. Even though they have to voluntarily participate in that, we believe that the mission of God is, is a long-term mission, that we're not guaranteed that he is going to come back in our lifetime. And so we believe it's, it's worth to raise children and to have them you know, live in such a way that they can come to know Jesus and then reach future generations. And so it validates singleness and marriage and all these different things um, if it's done, it, it validates so much of, of what your stance is if it's done in the will of God and for the purposes of God. And so we don't sit there with singleness or marriage and try to say one is better than the other. It's according to how God is called. Chapter 8, dealing with cultural customs in one's conscience. Chapter 9, Paul's testimony and teaching on the financial support for those whose lives are dedicated to the ministry. Chapter 10, to learn from Israel's failures, that the church should learn from Israel's failures. Chapter 11, we had so much fun on head coverings and corrections and instructions for the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12, spiritual gifts, their purpose and priorities. Chapter 13, that love has to be the tenor of the church, that that needs to be underlying absolutely everything in the church is love. In chapter 14, prophecy, tongues, and further instruction on worship. Chapter 15, the resurrection, well, resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus and its implications for us and for our lives. And now we have chapter 16. So we're going to get some final instructions, some future plans, some greetings and conclusions. And so we're going to run through this. So chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week... Let each one of you lay us something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. For it is fitting that I go also, and they will go with me. Um, and so as far as this collection goes, uh, the, church is the, in the church in Jerusalem is going through a difficult time, and they're in need um, of help. And we'll see more of that later on in the book of 2 Corinthians. But just the note there that every follower of Jesus has a responsibility to participate in the Lord's work, and we do so according to how the Lord has resources. And so I know many of you still think in terms of, because you were just brought up this way, you think in terms of percentages, you think in terms of the tithe, and 10% is what is God's, and 90% you do whatever you want with. Um, But really, that's not the biblical model. It's really not the Old Testament teaching. Because it certainly wasn't just about the 10%. That was this, just the baseline, first fruits, and then there was all sorts of free will offerings and offerings for the poor, and also that sorts of stuff. The 10% just helped the, the functions of the priests and the temple uh, to continue on as normal. Um, but there were all these other gifts that were to be, to be given and to be done. But in the New Testament, you know, Jesus fulfills the law, so we don't have that at all. And there's no law for you to give 10%, period. Um, that's a, you know, that one of those things that's been held on to from the law, but it's not a law for us. So it's 100% God's. You've been given the stewardship of it. So in, out of relationship and communication with God, you, know, you give, and that should be out of generosity, not out of greed. The question isn't anymore um, how much do I give? But the question becomes, how much do we keep for our practical needs? That becomes the question. We reverse it. You know, that's a big problem for the church all the time. It's asking the opposite question of what it should be asking. And that's an example of that. So, there you go. Verse 5. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I'm passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay for a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. So in this verse, I think really is key, those two verses there are are key to the chapter. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. And so he's already given a couple examples of that with Timothy and Apollos and how they've um, acted and their approach to life. And then he continues in verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaeus. messed that one up. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, hold on there just for a, you know a moment as we've talked about these awesome people, and it'd be a great study for you. We don't have the time this morning. But just to look up those individuals and, and see what else the Bible says about them, where they are. Some we have more information about than others. But it's great to see those examples. It's also awesome to see, you know, we've already talked, already talked about the churches in Jerusalem and in Ephesus and, you know, in, um, in Asia and all these different places. And it's, it's awesome. They're all on the same team and they're all working for the, the, for the same purpose. Now, unfortunately, we can't say the same thing today. We can't say that all churches are on the same team. We can say all true churches are on the same team. There's a lot of things that are called churches that aren't really churches. They're social clubs or they just teach terrible things and they have no business putting the name church, having anything to do you know, associated with that or even the name of Jesus. But we are on the same team with everyone who loves the Lord Jesus and who preaches the good news of Jesus and salvation by faith and that pushes people on to live their lives Based on that faith in good works for God's glory and honor, we're on the same team with all of those. And so we're not really, we shouldn't be concerned about who gets the credit or who doesn't get the credit and those sorts of things. We should be concerned about the name of Jesus and going forward in that. So many people get hung up on a name. Well, it would be better if we probably just didn't have them, period, in terms of like identifying these different groups. I mean, they, they are useful in some ways. Sometimes it's just useful to let you know what to avoid. But we're on the same team with everybody who loves Jesus and is working for him, preaching the gospel. Verse 21, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. A curse from the Greek anathema. Just read a couple of verses from Galatians chapter one, verses eight and nine. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again: If anyone preaches any other gospel to you that when you have received than the one you have received, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't put up with false teachers because he knows how dangerous they are and how much they disrupt. Uh, they can dis- destroy a community how disruptive they are. And so, you know, that's really, you know, when he says that anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Well, one cannot love the Lord Jesus and preach false, you know, false teachings, especially concerning the character of God and the nature of salvation and these sorts of things, and be loving God at the same time. They can say they love God. They can say they love Jesus, but without preaching, if the, if the gospel gets distorted, if the preaching of the word gets distorted, that's certainly not loving Jesus. And so Paul takes a pretty hard line with that. The phrase, O Lord, come, your Bible might say, Maranatha. Now your version you're using this morning might, might use that word. And that's you know, the Greek transliterated from the Aramaic. Uh, but it, you know that Maranatha means, O Lord, come. And that's what we should be praying, Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And isn't that one of the things that should be our prayer all the time? Is like, we are so looking forward to the return of Jesus. If we have that attitude of we don't want Jesus to come back yet because he, you know, our life's going to get interrupted and there are still things that we want to do. And I used to have this kind of perspective, and I think it's normal for young people to have this perspective. But you kind of think, well... Lord hadn't been married yet. And it's like, Lord, well, we hadn't had kids yet. Well, Lord, we you know. Well, guess what? When Jesus comes back, whoever's, you know, the followers of Jesus at that time, their lives are gonna get interrupted. But you know what? When they see Jesus, or whether we see Jesus, we are not gonna care. We are just gonna be fully excited and stoked that Jesus has come back. So that's the perspective we should have now is, you know, Lord, if you're ready to come back this hour, come on back. Yeah. Because we are ready for you and we are ready for, to, to, that all this nonsense on our earth is ultimately put to a stop. And that's the next step, Jesus coming back, you know, for us. So that's, you know, we, we, are, we are ready for this time to be done. But while this time is still here, we have to use it. And we have to use it for God's glory and honor, and we have to use it well, because there are people whose eternal souls, you know, eternal lives, do hang in the balance. You know I firmly believe that whether or not we share the gospel with other people does make a difference. Whether or not we're obedient to Jesus does make a difference. God has not sent us on foolish errands. He's not just wasting our time. And his, but that our lives matter and how we live them matters. It matters. <clears throat> and at the same time, we say, big picture, what can stop the will of God? When Jesus is ready to come back, he's gonna come back. When Jesus was ready to the cross, what, well, nothing's stopping him from going to the cross? You know, those things concerning him and his glory, they're gonna happen. Those big picture things that concern Jesus, they're going to happen regardless whether anybody wants them to happen or not. But our participation in that, that's a different story. Whether you get to participate in his story, that has to do with obedience or not. You can opt out of some of the blessings that God has for you to share in, for me to share in. We can opt out of those. Let's not opt out. Let's embrace it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Moving right along, um, let's just go ahead and keep reading. First seven verses, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is, a, is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. You know, it's it's awesome. It says that the Father is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That that's essential to the character of God is that God is a comforting God. Isn't that wonderful to know? That God is a comforting God. And that's one of the main things that he does is that he comforts us in our sorrow and that God is compassionate towards us. And if you have suffered in any way and have allowed God to comfort you then you are in a better position to help others who suffer to find comfort in God. That's kind of what Paul is saying here to you know, church at Corinth is like if we suffer it's going to be for your benefit because in our suffering we know the consolation of God and then we're able to share that with you and when you suffer we're able to help you is the general idea there. So the greater the suffering that you endure that you endure the right way because there's wrong ways to endure suffering, right? You can, you can just you know, take the advice that was given to Job, which is to curse God and die. You can take that approach. but you, So you can take different approaches to suffering, but if you handle suffering well in terms of going to God and allowing him to comfort you, the more you suffer, then the greater your potential capacity to help others. Because we live in a broken world, and we live in a world full of suffering. But for some of you who have been through some very difficult things in your lives, and if you handle those well, and you have God's comfort and healing in your life, then you're in a position to help those who have been in similar things. But again, we have to go back to the key thing is, if you just handle it in yourself, if you just handle it with your own coping ways, then you're really not going to be able to help others when they're going through those things. You're only going to be able to give worldly advice you're only going to be putting Band-Aids on gaping wounds, just like you've done in your own life. But if you go to God and experience his comfort and experience his healing, then you're able to take that to other people and to share it with them. So it, it's amazing that our world is so painful, so sinful, so broken, and yet God can... You know, uses those painful experiences to shape us for our good and for His glory. He can use those things to shape us and to help form our character and who we are. Many of God's people, you, when you look at them and you say, "Wow, I love, their, I love that person, I love their, their character." What a blessing they are to others. Consider that there was a price to pay for that. That didn't just happen. There's a price to pay for that. So if you want to be that person, you're like, oh, I want to be like that person who helps so many others and their, their struggles and in their needs. Are you willing to endure similar things to what that person has endured? Do you know the full story? Or do you just look and see what you, you know, what you think is you know their their life and their experiences with the Lord and with suffering? But Paul finishes that little section by saying, "Our hope for you is steadfast." Now we're going to see that that's a pretty amazing statement. Again, all the troubles he's had here with the church at Corinth, but he says, "Our hope for you is steadfast." So that question for us. Is, you know, do we have steadfast hope for one another? When you see everyone else in the church, church, are you hopeful and are you steadfast in your hope for their lives and what God's going to continue to do in them and, and to grow, and that they're going to continue to grow and to, to serve the Lord? Are you hopeful? Are we hopeful for one another? And are we steadfast in that hope? And sometimes in certain situations, we can have reason to not be steadfast in our hope. We have reasons to have grave concern and doubt. But we want to be people who are hopeful about God's work in people's lives. We don't want to, you know, know, I I just, as a person, you know, I, I tend to prefer to call it realism as opposed to pessimism. But sometimes I can be pessimistic. Sometimes I can be optimistic. But, you know, let's try not to be pessimistic people. But let's try to be optimistic people, hopeful people. Because who's on our side? God is, Jesus is, we have reason to be hopeful. Verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burned beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Now it's unclear what happened uh, to Polynesia, what exactly he's referring to there. Later in this letter, he refers to multiple times being beat, um, you know, 39 times, you know, with a whip. You know, and, you know, 40 spare one was the, the rule. But people could die under that sort of beating. And Paul received that multiple times. You know, I think about being, you know, you know where you despair even of life. When I was, I was in college and I got so sick and I had, I'm on the side of this interstate with the dry heaves and it's awful. And I pray and I say, you know, God, if you could, I'll do anything you want, even if it's go to India, which I was really afraid God wanted me to do. So, God, I'll go to India. I'll do that. Why? I mean, that was, that's just a long story, why my brain worked that way. But yes, I'll said i do that, or you can take my life. Either way, just please make this stop. Now, that's pretty weak, because it was a momentary, you know, it was a temporary affliction. Nothing of the sorts of things that, you know, Paul endured. He despaired, I mean, for him to say, I mean, you're a tough dude if you take like five times getting beat that much. He's a tough dude. For him to say he despaired even of life, you know, it had to be some serious, serious business that he went through. But again, all of that's so that we do not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Again, what's your ultimate hope? What's your ultimate hope and life? And, you know, there's that trust that Paul has, you know, that God's going to keep on delivering him. It's okay if he doesn't because he knows he's going to go be with, you know, with God. But he has that confidence that his work isn't done yet. And then he says, you know, you also helping together in prayer for us. Again, those prayers, coming back to that and the importance of that. Verse 12, for our boasting is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conduct ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, so also are our, you are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus.'" Paul says he has a clear conscience. It's a powerful statement that he doesn't have regret in how he's treated the people at the church at Corinth and you know, the overall general scheme of things. It doesn't mean he didn't ever have any sort of regret about any word that he said or anything that he did, but that his general, you know, his general position with the church at Corinth is that he, could, he lived among them in simplicity and godly sincerity and that he didn't have reason to have any great regret about how he lived. Towards them, that he had given them, you know, he's, he's giving them everything that he can give them in spiritual terms, in, the, in helping them to know to know God. He has a clear conscience, and that's just a you know something that I, I would I hope it does for myself. It's just kind of one of those like, hey, make sure you live it, make sure you live this life without regret. You know, and, and those sorts of things even you know i I've, I've always kind of thought about those things but even much more so as i'm starting to get a little bit older and you know i'm getting closer to the big 40 and i look at it and go you know normal life expectancy and i might have more or less but you know what are we i mean i could die next week i mean that's possible or whatever but if it's if it's a normal life expectancy i mean we're getting to the you know we're about the halfway sort of sort of mark and that's a little bit like what Really, this is about half done. It seems like, you know, not that long ago, I was just, you know, riding my big wheel. You know, I mean, it really doesn't seem like that far away. And we're about halfway. It's like, well, okay, that's reality check. What are we going to do the rest of this time? Like, you know, we really have to live it for Jesus. And so, you know, we need to have that mentality all the time. Um, not to the point that you're, you know, like stressed about that but just to the point that you're aware of that and that you're living it so that it counts. Live your life so that it counts. Verse 15 And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by the way of you to Macedonia to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore when I was planning this did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned do I plan according to the flesh that with me There should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Now, just a couple of notes. I want to talk a little bit about the letters that Paul wrote in his visits to Corinth just briefly. But before we do that, I want you to notice again that, That tenor, you know, he says, when I say yes, I mean yes, because that's what Jesus did. That's the example Jesus gave us. You know, and again, that can be a correction for us, for myself. I mean, I look at, okay, yes, I'm going to do this, and then, you know, you get busy and it slips past, and you're like, whoops, I didn't do that. You know, and that's not, obviously, how we want to be living our lives. I know we're all guilty to one degree or another, but we need to strive for that, to that yes. When I say yes, it means yes. When I say no, it means no. And that's that, you know, it's the best of my abilities in the Lord. Um, And so that's how we want to try to strive to live. And so, you know, if you ever see me say yes and I, you know, say yes to something and I don't do it, please correct me on that. Like, that's what I want. I don't want to just like slide by. And I hope that you don't want that either. So, again, Are we transparent? Do we have accountability in our lives? Are we willing to be held accountable by other people if we say we're going to do something that we follow through on it? So if you say, hey, I'm going to read my Bible consistently this year, if you say yes to that, do it. If you're not sure that you want to make that sort of commitment, don't promise it. Don't say yes to it. Because the yes is a promise before God, as far as God's concerned. Now we kind of think, Well, you know, I didn't pinky swear or whatever it was, so therefore, you know, I mean, it was not that big a deal. But understand, to God, a yes is a yes and a no is a no, what other words are associated with it or not. You know, he expects us to follow through. Um, So we need to be careful, and sometimes we need to learn to say no, to say no if there's no intent, if there's no intent on doing that, we need the honesty and the courage to say, no, I can't do that. Sometimes you're doing that so you can say yes to something you know, better or more important. But you need to do that. So, <clears throat> now, here we go. Here's a quick timeline. Well, actually, before we get there. Now he who establishes with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Do we get that? He has sealed us and given us the spirits in our hearts as a guarantee. Now this is that confidence because we do fall and we do fail and we do sin and make mistakes. But what's getting you to heaven? Is it your you know ability to keep? You know, all the, all the right rules, all the right things to do everything perfectly? No, it's not that. It's that the, when you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a seal and has sealed us and given us the spirits in our hearts as a guarantee. That that's the guarantee. Do we get that? That that's the guarantee. Not based on what we've done, but on what Jesus has done. Praise God for that and the spirit of god within us and that's our and that's our guarantee because because guess what then this is really important if if you have the spirit of god as your seal you're safe because god cannot throw himself in hell and he's now with you you see what i'm saying like that's that's not able to be taken apart anymore that guarantee that seal you know is there and so you're free from judgment in that eternal sense. And again, I would also, just as I say that, because some of you might have the wrong ideal about it, you know, the scripture says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And God is not desiring to cast people into hell. God does not get any pleasure out of that. It's only because of people's rejection of him and, and rebellion and unwillingness to participate then have to go the other way. Okay, now we go. So there's a couple questions here, you know, because we, we asked the question about yes and no. Now, did Paul see them like he said he would back in 1 Corinthians 16, or did he not? We can see that there was a change of plans, but to one extent. And so I'm just going to give you a very brief little timeline here, and we'll make uh, there's a very good um, article that Michael shared with me and that uh, we've been looking at here over the last week or so as he's preparing to um, to share the word next week. And so I think we'll make that available. We'll put a link to that. And so you can read that um, and see the details of these letters and everything. But just a very brief uh, timeline. Paul arrived in Corinth about A.D. 50 and stayed there for a year and a half. So that's, you know... In our time frames, again, there's a little bit of issue with datings, but about 17 years after Je- after Jesus passed away. Yes. After death. No. Um, AD is La- It's for Latin, which means in the year of our Lord. Oh, you said 80. Like eighty. No, not no, not number eighty. The um, fifty AD or CE, depending on you know, common era or whatever, depending on which. Uh, one we use. I prefer the AD because it has to do with the Lord and isn't I mean the other dating is based on that as well but I don't like it kind of removed and secularized um, but anyway so a year and a half. Later in AD 52 uh, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians that is now lost we know that from First Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9 um, in the spring of AD 54 Paul wrote what we call First Corinthians. Now as far as the order of letters goes it's really Second Corinthians. I mean, as far as the second letter to the Corinthians. But it's what we call 1 Corinthians. Hang in there. He then visited the Corinthians later in the summer fall of the same year, and he, as he said he would, but he was not able to stay as long, and it was a painful visit. It's painful, and he leaves pretty quickly. So because of that visit, Paul writes a severe letter to the Corinthian church, and this letter is also lost. You could call that, if you wanted to, 3 Corinthians. In AD 55, Paul writes his fourth letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. Okay, So we really have the the second letter that he wrote and the fourth letter that he wrote. Because they're the only ones that we have, we call them first and second. And they're the only ones that God intended to be the scripture. That's also why we call them first and second. But there were other letters that were Written And then Paul visited a third time at the end of 55 um, or beginning of 56 A.D. So we have at least four letters that he wrote, two of them that we have, and three visits. It's possible that Paul you know, wrote other letters to them. Um, he could have written other letters you know, when he was under house arrest in Rome or something of that nature. But these were the only ones that we can certainly say existed, those four, and that we have these two, which God intended to be the scripture. And it's probably a blessing that the third one, especially the really severe one, um, was not, you know, that we don't have that because that would have been pretty embarrassing, as if the other stuff wasn't for the church at Corinth. But that one would have been, you know, pretty pretty extreme. Um, okay. One thing with this that we see in Paul's interaction with the Church of Corinth, his visits to them, which again, to travel back then is a dangerous thing and it's a difficult thing. It's not an easy thing. Um, It's also, you know, it's dangerous in that his life is constantly in danger. Everywhere he goes, if he leaves one place that he's at relative safety and goes to another place, he's putting himself out on the line again, you know, and there's all these different opportunities for different people to attack him. Uh, and then there's the internal struggles, you know, which should, like the church at Corinth should be a safe place for Paul. It should be a place where he can go and be refreshed by the believers there and just share in, you know, wonderful fellowship and encouragement in the Lord. But instead, it's a burden on him. It's a, it's a struggle because of the different sin issues that are going on within the church and how different people there. Um, are attacking him and responding to him negatively. That's a sad and terrible thing. But yet, the church of Jesus is worth it for Paul because he knows it's not just about how he feels or about what he gets out of it. And so when church becomes for you what you feel or what you get out of it, you've missed the way of Jesus. You've missed the way of Jesus about the church. You've bought in to an American, consumeristic, individualistic mindset You've been, your mind and heart has been corrupted by the world to such a degree that you don't even sometimes realize it and you sit there and go what's in it for me if your idea about church is what's in it for me you don't understand the first thing about church period period it's like you gotta start back at the basics Number one, the church is Jesus' church. Number two, the church is all for Jesus. It's about him. Number three, the community is bigger than the individual. Number four, every individual has a role to play in the community. Number five, the community has a responsibility to care for the individuals within it. But the individual doesn't come first. The individual does not get put ahead of Jesus. The individual does not get put ahead of the community except for when the community decides collectively this person really needs our love and efforts and so we're all willing to take a hit and a sacrifice for this situation, for this person. But in the normal course of events, in the normal course of things, the community comes first not the individual. And so we have to be checked by these things because, especially because of our cultural influences, our natural tendency whenever we're in, a, in a, any sort of community, but particularly church community, is to say, well, you know, I'm not getting out of this everything that I want to get out of this, and therefore I'm going to find something different. That's, again, the way of the world. The way of, the way of God is to say, what more do I have to give and to share with this community, with this church? Lord, use me to bless others. It's just a completely different mindset. And with that mindset, there's very little thought about self in terms of what one's self oneself is getting out of it but, you know, we've been taught in everything. It's all about you, or it's all about me. And that's just a terrible, terrible thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that has really hindered the church's ability to be a contrast community and to make a difference in our world. Now, there are times where God does call people to Move and to do different things, but that's always to be out of an act of obedience to God. There are times when it is right to leave a church because, you know, the church has, you know, people, the leadership in church has started teaching false doctrines, um, you know, terrible things. Sin is going, you know, rampant, uncorrected. Leadership unwilling to do, you know, anything about it, and you've you've tried to stick it out, and you've done everything you can to affect change. And nobody is willing, at that point, maybe so. But it's interesting here at the current church at Corinth, Paul doesn't give people that, even really, that option so readily. He tells them to deal with, you know, there's enough good there to, to where he says, you know, handle these situations and make the church healthier and better. But his, you know, most people, most advice given today would have been, well, it'd be better off, you know, let's just start another, let's just divide this one and start another one. Let's just split it. And that's been the historical church pattern. Oh, you like, you don't like that color carpet? I like the blue. You like, you want the red? We're done. We're done. I mean, people literally, I have heard of a church splitting because of where the refrigerator would be close, where it would be placed in the kitchen when they were planning a new kitchen. And these two ladies in the church said each of their husbands were elders, were fighting and arguing about where the refrigerator would be placed. And the church ultimately split over a refrigerator location. That's true. That's a true story. And if that doesn't show you the pettiness of humans and how completely off of Jesus we can get I mean my goodness so again it's about Jesus and it's worth fighting for and it's worth struggling and it's worth hardships it's worth disappointments and so you know when is it time for any person to move on from any church it's time when to do otherwise would be disobedient to Jesus and until then, we don't really have much questions to ask. You know what I'm saying? Until you get to the point where, like, I'd be disobedient to Jesus because he's asked me to go to this other city or to this other thing or to do this other thing. At that point, when you would be disobedient to Jesus to not be, you know, be strong in the community and be giving everything that you have. And so, again, back from First Corinthians 16, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, Be strong, let all that you do be done with love. Hear that again. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. And, you know, as Paul ended that chapter in 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about, you know, we are your fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. So being together, working together for Jesus could be a, should be a cause for joy in our lives, right? I mean, that should be a cause for joy, the fact that we get to worship Jesus together. We get, to, we get to worship Jesus together. We get to study the Word together. We get to encourage each other. We get to work together, you know, for the Lord. And, you know, it's so awesome because we have this mentality that you see very present in the passages that we looked at today. Um, You know, Andrew working at DFACS, we're all working at DFACS. You get that? Like, we're all participating in that. You know, one of our mothers working with their their kids, like, we're all participating in that. You know, my wife working in, in a business office at the University of Georgia, we're all participating in that. When Ashley's sitting there in class, we're all participating in that. Because you know each one represents Jesus and the whole of our church community. And with that comes joy and responsibility. Say, so, hey, we don't just represent you know, ourselves, we represent Jesus and we represent our church family. And that, and that should be a cause for joy. If it's a cause for like, uh-oh, well that means something probably needs to change. <laughs> right? So, man, it should be for joy. But sometimes we don't, we don't have that joy. How many of you would be with honest with me this morning and say, you know, in the last, there's been a time in the last three months or so that you, you know, you, just you can remember, you're like, I, I really didn't have much joy that week or those days or whatever. You got anybody? Okay, hey, that's most everybody in the room. All right, not having that much joy. <coughs> having joy. So. You know, on on Thursday morning, I didn't have a lot of joy well, under a lot of, you know, a lot of things come from a lot of different angles, um, not going into everything there, but under a, a good bit of spiritual attack, and, you know, my prideful flesh didn't want to be honest about that. It didn't want to be honest about that. So, of course, the morning that my, my phone rings, and I see it's Derek, and I don't want to talk to Derek, because I'm going to... Probably need to be to be honest about you know where where I'm at in that moment, even though he might not be calling to you know it could just be a random question or a, you know whatever thing. But yeah, which it was, whatever it was, and I'm like I don't want I don't want to talk to Derek right now. Decline, <laughs> Let's sit here in my little pity party. Decline. So about ten minutes later, it rings again, and it's Derek again, and I'm like, man. Well, it's the Lord being persistent, you know. Usually, Derek would just send me a text or, or leave a message, but reason recently get it, so I'm just like, "Okay, Lord, I hear you." You know, talk to him on the phone, tell him the truth. You know, he prays for me right there, and in that moment, I could just feel that burden being lifted. You know, going away, healing taking place. Um, Lord followed up the next day by sending a, a friend from out of town and got to spend some time and hang out with him and just a great day, but just with the reality of it is that we you know we all have down days we all have days where we 're not doing well or sometimes and if we don 't handle the day one of not doing well, then it gets a little harder day two or day three or day four, and days can turn into weeks and weeks can turn into months and so you know we have to. Uh, we all have junk and we have to allow it to be worked through we all have it but without transparency without vulnerability we only stifle ourselves you know the pride that we each have doesn't want us to do that pride that we each have doesn't want us to do that but let's refuse to play games you know let's be real <coughs> Because with that and being willing to change comes growth, the potential for growth and real growth. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, that all that you do be done with love, that all that you do be done with love. Watch out for your own life, for the lives around you. And be filled with God's Spirit, be filled with God's love, and have that heart that says, You know, Lord Jesus, please come quickly. Maranatha. Amen. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we just confess that we're all weak and and broken in our different ways, and lord we, we all have days where we certainly need your help. Thank you that you provided brothers and sisters for us to encourage us and to lift us up and Lord, please don 't let us be complacent don 't let us wallow in our our selfish pride, but let us respond to you, let us Be open to the people that you've put in our lives and that you've given to us to be, to be honest and to be transparent with them. And Lord, that we would help one another in this. Lord, fill us with your joy. I pray that when we leave here this morning, we'd be just joyful people that we will have left our burdens um, at the cross. As we take that bread and that cup, before we take it, Lord, that we confess any sins that we have or any burdens that we have, we would take to you. We would allow you to heal us and free us. Lord, if, that, if we need to, to talk to someone, that we would do that right away, that we wouldn't delay it. If any of us needs help, Lord, that we would ask for help. We wouldn't be too prideful to ask, Lord. Lord, that as we take that bread and that cup that you would again fill us with your spirit and with your joy to overflowing and that when we leave here our cups would overflow overflow with love for one another and for the people in this world who don't know you yet and we would just so desire to take you Jesus to them that Jesus you would be our agenda you're the one we want to take to them Jesus Jesus we are the one that we want to share. Lord, we have you to share. And so, thank you, Jesus, that you came for us and that you died for us, and that you are risen from the dead and that you will return for us. So, as we take that bread and that cup this morning, dear Jesus, we say thank you and we say, please come quickly. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.